0: Well, it is our tradition at uh, Blessings, in connection with our teaching service, to go through one of the the doctrinal statements of our church called the Heidelberg Catechism. And this is an old document. It was produced at the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, so it's been around for hundreds of years. And it goes through the very basics of the Christian faith. It teaches us the Apostles' Creed, which is in many ways the foundation of our doctrine, the Ten Commandments, which is in many ways the foundation for our ethics, and the Lord's Prayer, which is in many ways the foundation for our spirituality. And tonight uh, we're going to look at the catechism's instruction about the address in the Lord's Prayer, namely, Our Father, And uh, we're going to read two questions and answers responsively. One of the the things that the Protestant reformers taught back in the 16th century is that in worship, we ought to be participants. Martin Luther, who was a famous uh, reformer, emphasize what's called the priesthood of all believers, that there isn't just a priest up on the stage, but if we are Christian believers and followers of Jesus, we are in fact all priests, and so we all have a part to play in worship, and so we're going to play a part tonight not only by singing and by praying and by reciting the creed, but by answering these questions together, and there are two of them. Lord's Day 46 of the Catechism. I will pose the question and invite you to say the answer with me. So first then, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ, and will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith, than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. Why is there added in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner, but to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. And now we're going to turn to the text for the message tonight, which comes from the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus, of course, gives the Lord's Prayer, which will be the subject of our new series titled Reorienting Desire in Matthew 6. And we want to direct our attention to the verses that immediately precede Jesus giving the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, we want to begin at verse 5 and read to the end of verse 8, and we're going to be thinking about what it means to call God our Father. Jesus here teaches this, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Well, when you think of religion, you often think of prayer. It's the one activity that most people associate, especially with religion. And when you think of Christianity, you often think of the Lord's Prayer. It is a prayer that is known by Christians of every tradition. Christians of every tradition, for the most part, can Recite the Lord's Prayer as you, if you grew up in the church, may be able to do. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably have some sense about what the Lord's Prayer means. And we, the pastors of blessing over the next few weeks, are going to reflect on the Lord's Prayer. And we've titled this series, Reorienting Desire, because this is what we believe the Lord's Prayer does. The Lord's Prayer teaches us. The Lord's Prayer catechizes us. The Lord's Prayer disciples us. It reorients our desires properly because our desires are so often misdirected. And you will notice as we go through the Lord's Prayer that it has this very comprehensive quality. It begins, as we're going to note uh, this evening, with our Father. It begins with God, but it ends with the devil, "...lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one," is the proper translation of that last petition. It begins in heaven and ends in hell, and covers everything in between. So the Lord's Prayer, therefore, has a very significant function to play in our spirituality. It is the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And tonight... We're going to think, on the, think about the important address of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. And we're going to think about that address in terms of the verses that immediately precede the Lord's Prayer. And These are, of course, the verses that we read just a moment ago. And we're going to see that here Jesus teaches us to seek our Father in prayer. And we'll see two things in the time we have together. First of all, the motive of prayer, and then the mode of prayer. These are the two things that Jesus teaches before actually giving the Lord's Prayer. We are to seek our Father in prayer. The motive of prayer, and then the mode of prayer. You will notice that in the verses that immediately precede the Lord's Prayer, Jesus introduces us to the hypocrites. He says, don't be like The hypocrites. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. And here we see the bad motive for prayer, which is to be seen and rewarded by many people. The bad motive for prayer. Nowhere does Jesus actually identify the hypocrites as Pharisees, but this is a likely conjecture that we make. What were the Pharisees doing? How did they exhibit this bad motive? Well, they were known for praying in the usual places for prayer, in the synagogue and on the street corners. They were known for praying at the fixed times of prayer. Three times a day the Jews would pray, morning, noon, and evening. And they were always rigid about that. But the Pharisees were a little strategic as well, because when a Pharisee, would think about his day. He would plan to go to Limeridge Mall shortly before noon so that when the time came to pray at noon, there would be a great crowd of people around, and he could get down on his knees or lie down and pray, and there would be a lot of people around to see him pray. He prayed to be seen by others. It was theater. It was performance for the Pharisee. Pharisees were ostentatious, word of the day, ostentatious. They were doing prayer, engaging in prayer to impress others. They wanted to be seen as spiritual superheroes. They were advertising their piety. Jesus says, these are hypocrites and don't be a hypocrite. Well, what is a hypocrite? As I understand it, there are two wrong definitions that we have of hypocrite, both of which are quite popular. And Jesus, when he uses the word hypocrite, means something quite specific. It's so important for us to know what exactly Jesus means. The first conception that we have of hypocrisy, that hypocrisy is doing something bad while professing something good. An example would be, a politician who runs a campaign against bribery, but in the course of his campaign takes bribes. We say that's hypocrisy. Well, actually, it's not hypocrisy as Jesus understands it. It is bad, it is living a double life. But in this instance, what you have is a contradiction between a profession and a practice. What somebody is saying with their mouth contradicts what they are doing with their hands. There's a contradiction between profession and practice, and both the profession and the practice are external. Saying something with your mouth, doing something with your hand as you were, doesn't quite capture what Jesus is getting at. Because for Jesus, the contradiction is between something in your heart, something internal, and something in your life. Which brings us then to the second mistaken understanding of hypocrisy, which is doing something good reluctantly with little motivation. An example here would be going to church when you don't feel like it. That's hypocrisy, people say. Well, actually, it's not hypocrisy. But it gets a little closer to what Jesus means by hypocrisy because now the contradiction is between something internal and something external, your desire and your practice. But Jesus, when he, um, when he highlights hypocrisy, isn't thinking about your desires first and foremost. And just think about it. Is it the case that your practice should always be consistent with your desires. If your practice is always consistent with your desires, you may never be a hypocrite, but you will be a selfish narcissist. Is it the case that we're only to do in life what we desire? But what about an elderly woman who's crossing the street and needs help? and you don't feel like helping her, are you then excused from doing it? No, we must help people whether we feel like it or not. Is it the case that if we don't feel like going to church, we shouldn't go to church, that that would be hypocrisy? Not at all. Should we only pray when we feel like it? Should we only be loving to our wives or to our husbands or to our parents or to our children when we feel like it? And yet today, what is prized is authenticity, right? Sincerity, living out your desires. And I want to say to you tonight that don't, you should not sacrifice obedience for authenticity. Jesus himself didn't. The Bible says that Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered. The Bible says that Jesus himself had to wrestle with his will and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane in the shadow of the cross, not my will, but your will be done. Was Jesus a hypocrite? No, Jesus, of course, was not a hypocrite. But the Apostle Paul in Galatians talks about conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And when you walk by the spirit... You are not gratifying the desires of your flesh. You are not living life as you please. So, hypocrisy is not doing bad while professing good. It's not doing good reluctantly with little motivation, a situation that we often find ourselves in that can be virtuous, but it's doing good eagerly with a bad motivation. The Pharisees, you see, were eager to pray, eager to go to church, eager to fast, eager to give their money to the poor, but they did it for theater, to be seen by others. And perhaps we're guilty of this kind of hypocrisy. If you are a person who prays only when there are other people around, Only in public situations you fall prey to this kind of hypocrisy. Sometimes, uh, when we pray, we pray in such a way that we're drawing attention to ourselves. Maybe we want to be known by how we pray so well. In that case, we would fall prey to the hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about. So, that's the bad motive What is the good motive? Well, the good motive is to be seen and rewarded by the Father. He's the one that counts, and he should be the focus of our prayers. So Jesus says, go into your room. If this is your temptation, to have a spirituality that is seen by others, to advertise your piety, to be known as a spiritual superhero, well, then you need to go in your closet." And you need to pray to be seen by your Father in heaven. He's the one that counts. Jesus, I don't think, is forbidding all public prayer. Jesus himself prayed in public often, prayed with people often, but he's concerned about especially that demographic of people that is praying to be seen by others. And if this is our problem, if we are ostentatious in our prayer, then the best thing that we can actually do is pray the Lord's Prayer because it reorients us, it recalibrates us, shifts our direction to God and His will and His name and His kingdom, reminds us as we pray of our own weaknesses. We are dependent on God for daily provision and daily pardon and daily protection. The Lord's Prayer has the capacity to reorient us. And so we're praying now not to be seen by others, but be seen by the Father. And when the Father who is in secret sees us, He rewards us. And those aren't just rewards in the future, the rewards in the present. The reward of knowing the Father, of being in relationship with Father, with, with experiencing the Father's love. Your Father who rewards you, your Father who sees you, will reward you. So Jesus is teaching us to seek our Father. Now, isn't this patriarchalism? Isn't this patriarchy? Having to call God Father. You know, there was a theologian a while back by the name of Mary Daly who said, Since God is male, male is God. And she was arguing that we live in a world that's dominated by men. And she found the notion that God should be addressed as Father deeply problematic, contributing to patriarchy, the subjugation of women over time. And it, it is true that women have been subjugated. And there's no excuse or license in the Bible for the subjugation of women. We ought to be as concerned as Mary Daly about this. And so Mary Daly and others have proposed that we abandon this language of Father and Son and Spirit and maybe embrace the language instead of of Creator and Liberator and Comforter, and then we've now made it all neutral, right? Well, I want us to see three things here. First of all, God has no sexuality. There is no Christian theologian of any tradition who argues that God has sexuality, that God is... A male or that God is a female. Sexuality is part of the structure of creation. Well, if that's the case, why don't we address God in some kind of neutral way, perhaps as rock or as water or as bread? Neither male nor female. Well, the problem here is that a rock can't ask anything of you. Water can't ask anything of you. And it is very clear in the Bible that God is a person. So God is not part of creation, and yet God is personal. Well, but isn't it the case that God is compared to a mother in Scripture? Yes, it is the case that God is compared to a mother in Scripture. In fact, there are. In the prophecy of Isaiah, four times where God is compared to a mother. And here we're learning the distinction between simile and metaphor. When God is compared to a mother, it is simile. When God is called mother, that is metaphor. God is never called mother, He's only compared to a a mother. He is, you know, one example is Isaiah 44, where it says that. God cries out like a mother in childbirth. Well, God isn't there represented by a mother, but, he's, but there's an aspect of being a mother that fits with an aspect of who God is. But what we find is that the, uh, God is compared to a father, and God is called father, something that is not true of uh, God as mother. The Father is a revealed name. It's not just a metaphor. It's the name that God gives himself. Well, again, there are people who say, this is the projection of a patriarchal culture. Well, think about this. You know, in the Bible, in ancient times, uh, most nations, almost every nation, had female gods. They were very common. In the Bible, we are introduced to Some of them in the Old Testament, Asherah, a very famous female Babylonian god. In the New Testament, we read about Artemis, a very famous Greek female god. That was in the culture of the time, and God very specifically and deliberately did not identify himself as mother, but as father, setting himself apart from the gods of the ancient world. Why did he do so? And why would it be so problematic for us if we were to think of God as mother? Well, we would be violating the revelation of God Himself, but, and this is something I've learned from a feminist theologian, if we begin to think of God as mother, our whole theology of God changes. And before long, we will think of God giving birth. To the world. And if God gives birth to the world, then the world retains some of his deity. And before you know it, everything is divine, which is exactly the direction that theologians who defend calling God as mother has gone or have gone. Okay, secondly and lastly, the mode of prayer. There's a bad mode Many words to manipulate a reluctant God. And of course, here is where Jesus says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And again, in the ancient world, you find this, that uh, the pagans, when they prayed to their gods, would repeat petitions endlessly for hours, trying to get the attention of their God, trying to manipulate their God. You see it in the famous story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You can read about this in 1 Kings 18. And there you read that the prophets of Baal prayed from morning to noon. And then you remember Elijah, if you're familiar with the story, began to taunt them, speak louder, And then they prayed again from noon to evening and there was no response. Just repeating petitions over and over again trying to get the attention of the reluctant God. And then Elijah prays a very simple prayer and God responds. You have an example of this in the New Testament. In uh, Acts, uh, I don't know, neighborhood of 18, 19 where Paul is in Ephesus and He's been speaking against idols, and people are reacting, and they begin shouting, Great is Artemis of Ephesus, or what is it? Yeah, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the text says they repeated it for two hours, the same chant. Now, Jesus is not condemning all repetition in prayer. Again, we've referred to Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed the same thing three times. But what Jesus is saying is we don't need to do things to get God's attention. We already have a relationship with him. And we have a relationship with him through Jesus. Because when you believe in Jesus, you're adopted into the family. He is Father. And you can have every confidence that he will hear you. This is what the catechism is teaching. We call God, Father, to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things don't think you need to say special words or special phrases or say them in a special way to get God's attention. Jesus says, God, in fact, knows what you need even before you ask. And so whatever it was that threw you into a tailspin this week, whatever upset your life, that you're struggling now to respond with. God knew about it long before. And that gives us confidence. We can pray a very direct and simple prayer. And he knows about the situation. We can be confident of his love for us. We believe in Jesus. We're part of his family. He will hear us. And he will answer us. So we need to seek the Father in prayer with the right motive, not to be seen by people, but to be seen by the Father. And we must pray with the right mode, not many words to manipulate a reluctant God, but direct words to address a loving Father. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we pray that you would clarify for us how simple our prayers can be. We can speak to you with every confidence that you hear, and your response to us is not dependent on particular words or phrases or time. Liberate us to talk to you. To love you, to seek relationship with you, to pray with the right motives and in the right mode. And we thank you that through Jesus we have this close relationship with you. And in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Very quickly, oh boy, a lot of questions. What place do forms prayer have? Are they not an example of too much thought going into the formulation of prayers rather than the true heart of a simple prayer? And yeah, There's a long-standing tradition in the Christian church of praying what are called set prayers or form prayers. And are they better or worse than what we might call extemporaneous prayers or free prayers? Well, I'm not sure that God as a preference. I think there are advantages and liabilities to each kind of prayer. Uh, for example, with a set prayer, there's very likely it's very likely that you are going to suffer from pride or that you're going to be motivated by the wrong reasons because you're going to pray words that you already have. When you pray an extemporaneous prayer, you're going to be very focused on the language that you're using, and then you might want to embellish the language or use very flowery language or highly spiritual language, and then you become guilty of exactly the thing that Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees about. So, in in a lot of Christian traditions, they frown upon extemporaneous or free prayers and use set prayers. This is what you find, especially in the Anglican tradition, for example. Whereas in the free church tradition, it's more common to have spontaneous, extemporaneous prayer. Um, and the ext- extemporaneous prayer has some advantages as well, where you're, there's no possibility then of your spirituality becoming rote, but it's it's from the heart and and um, and freely and freshly spoken, and that has some advantages as well. So I'm ambivalent about whether one form of spirituality is better than the other. I think there are advantages and liabilities with each, and occasionally in our worship we do like to use a set prayer. Regarding God's lack of sexuality, how would you respond to an individual who refers to God the Father due to a troubled relationship with their own earthly father? Is this unbiblical? Well, I want to have all the sensitivity in the world to a person who has had a troubled relationship with his or her earthly father. and I would not immediately blow the whistle and write up a ticket for it, I think we want to be understanding with people. And the most uh, severe pain and hurt that people experience today is sometimes the pain and hurt that have been caused by fathers. But I think what I want to do is say, we should not think of God as father in terms of our experiences with our earthly fathers. I would hope that my sons don't do that with God thinking of me, but we want to say that God is is completely different than earthly fathers, and he is without sin. Uh, In the past, I was involved in a children's ministry here in the city of Hamilton where the boys and girls were often abandoned by their fathers or neglected by their fathers or mistreated by their fathers, and I would tell them Stories of what God the Father was like, and their eyes would brighten, and their face would change, and they would begin to think of the world differently. Ah, they would think to themselves, I have a father, and he's a loving father. The fact that I don't have an earthly father in my life, or the fact that my earthly father is negligent of me, isn't going to affect me to the extent that it did, because I'm going to think of the Father I have in heaven, who is perfect, who never forgets me, never leaves me, never forsakes me. So our theology should never be a projection of our experience upward. Theology is revelation downward. We take what God says about uh, himself, and that's how we learn to address him. God doesn't learn how to be a father by looking at earthly fathers. Earthly fathers learn how to be a father by looking upward, too. God is heavenly Father. Okay, one more question. We always talk about the Pharisees as a whole, and it's usually in a negative context. Is it possible that not all Pharisees were hypocrites? Gamaliel, for example. Yeah, that's a very good question. I do think that we use the term Pharisee as a pejorative. We often think of the Pharisees quite negatively. These were the scrupulous Jews. These were the ones who were wanting to preserve authentic spirituality, I do believe that there were good Pharisees. Many of the early uh, Christians were Pharisees who came to believe in Jesus. And yet, uh, it's also the case that Pharisees are identified as hypocrites. Not explicitly in Matthew 6, but you know in Matthew 23, Jesus does there very explicitly identify Pharisees as hypocrites. And he says, you know, you tithe your spices, your mint and cumin, but you ignore the weightier matters of the law, uh, mercy and justice and love. You are, what Jesus says, your whitewashed tombs, your, your sepulchers that have death inside, but you've made it look pretty on the outside, just what we do with cemeteries, right? We bury death in the ground, but we create a garden on top. We make it look pleasant on top, and that's the way a lot of Pharisees were. I appreciate the question. Yes, it is the case that there were some very zealous, pious, devout Pharisees. But for the most part, they could be categorized by Jesus as hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. I'll conclude there. We won't be able to answer the other questions tonight. Maybe I'll have a chance this week to respond to those questions. Let us... uh